I farm so hard, the employees wanna find me. And then wanna hire me. What's 100k to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. A race can only go ace. Never wanna see another B unless I'm Jay Z. All right, great. Uh, my name is Lance Ray, a clinical specialist in emergency medicine. Uh, at Denver Health and Hospital Authority, where I'm also the uh, PGY2 uh, Residency Program Director for the EM program. I'm here today to talk about management of ventricular tachycardia in the emergency department. So I have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest to disclose or to declare. Um, so we're gonna, I've got two main objectives for us today. One is recognize different etiologies and forms of VTAC. Number two, is to analyze different pharmacological options for, for treating uh, VTAC. Um, you know, I know there's, a, there's, there's so many people on this, on this uh, the, the greatest show on earth today, I'm calling it. Uh, and I know there's a mixture of students uh, and other learners as well as, as, well as uh, a, a lot of EM pharmacists, you know. Um, but I think it's great. I'm, I'm actually happy that a lot of students are on too and learners because that kind of allows me to, to sort of, I don't like to use this term, but to dumb it down a little bit. But the, the subject matter and, and, and dysrhythmias has to sort of be, be dumbed down a little bit, right? And, and, and to, to sort of just break it down, simplify it. Um, and, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really happy for the, the mixture um, of the crowd today. Um, There's going to be a bunch of definitions. This is just to go back and, and reference uh, for yourself. So I'm going to um, start off here with a pre-assessment. And... Um, the question is, which of the following best fits the definition of ventricular tachycardia? So I'm going to go ahead and present the options here, trying to mess with the polls. All right. So a heart rate of greater than 200 with a wide QRS complex, ectopic ventricular reentry circuit with a heart rate of greater than 180, three more consecutive PVCs, or 10 seconds duration of a consistent QRS of above 120. So I opened the poll. Hopefully everyone can see this. Um, seeing some seeing some answers come across here. Um, I'll give it just a, about five more seconds, 10 seconds, kind of see what everyone thinks here. Oh, this looks like a good, this looks like I made a good question here. Oh, there's some shifting around. All right, all right. I'm gonna I'm gonna end the poll here in about a few few more seconds. All right, so I'm gonna share these results. Hopefully everyone can see these. So it looks like a heart rate greater than 200 with a wide QRS complex. All right, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that's not the answer I was looking for. And am I all right? So I'm going to unfortunately leave everybody hanging on this for a second. You're gonna to have to stay tuned to a few more slides to see the answer. So I want to talk about causes associated with our big presenting rhythms and cardiac arrest because of course we can't talk about VTAC. Without talking about V-fib, we can't talk about each of these without talking about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Of course, overall survival, this is an average, an aggregate of all the, all the numbers. Overall survival is about 10% for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, regardless of the cause. Here are our main three causes, right? Who knows what happens with a systole? I always tell my students, you know, um, we can go pull a body out of the morgue downstairs in the hospital and guess what rhythm that person will have? A systole. The survival is 1% because of that. We don't know how long the person's been down. Asystole is a flat line. We can't tell. Um, there's no electrical activity going on. Then we've got PEA, right? And I really try to hone in that PEA is really where we should be using the H's and T's. You can use it for VTAC and VFib too. But, but I think the H's and T's are really designed 
um, in, in the setting to talk about PEA. Survival is about 8% with PEA. Check this out. VTAC and VFib. Survival widely varies, but it's actually the best survival in terms of presenting rhythm. And the reason for that is it's, it's generally associated with coronary causes. And it's also very treatable if you have an AED or you shock the patient. So this is more of a background slide to get us all familiar with the, the, the nature of kind of that, that last thing I just said, that coronary, that, that, the, the causes of VTAC and VFib. So 37% of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients have initial rhythm of VTAC or VFib. Of these, about 18% require medication. That means that they were refractory to shock. It really emphasizes how shocking really works on, on, on our ventricular dysrhythmias. It's a great treatment for that. Here's where we get into more etiology. And I don't think we, we, we focus on this enough when we, when we teach anti-dysrhythmias -dys and, and, and antiarrhythmics and such. But what, what's causing ventricular dysrhythmia? It's associated with myocardial infarction, large territory of infarction, ischemic tissue. The ventricle doesn't like that. And the ventricle acts up. Initial shockable rhythm, um, you could probably flip a coin and 50-50 um, uh, that, that MI was the cause of this initial shockable rhythm, which is VTAC, VFib. Just a, a, a quick thing about pediatrics and adolescents, the causes of VTAC and VFib for pediatrics is way different, right? A, they don't have coronary arterial disease, and so we don't see that manifest. Um, there's a lot of congenital uh, issues at, at play here. Um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathies, um, Brugada syndromes, um, uh, other genetic sort of uh, uh, malformations and phenotypes. So finally, before we really get in and talk about VTAC, I feel like we have to talk about PVCs. A PVC is a premature ventricular contraction. It's an irritable area of the ventricle myocardium where an ectopic beat generates, okay? So we have to ask the question, why is a normal QRS complex narrow? Why is narrow normal and narrow is good? Well, that's because when our electricity goes through our heart and our Hispurkinji system and our bundle branches and out into the myocardium, it's a very quick and efficient system. Therefore, it leads to a narrow, fast QRS. So when a premature ventricular contraction comes, it's usually an area of ectopy out in the middle of the ventricular myocardium. So it's not designed to travel from point A to point B, you know, uh, across the ventricle. So it's slow and it's wide and it's wonky. When we have two different shapes, not going to get into EKGs too much, but when we have two different shapes, that's an indication that these uh, PVCs are happening in different areas of the heart, multifocal. Oh, you've got different areas of the heart that are sort of irritable, if you will. Y'all ready for the definition of VTAC? It's three or more consecutive PVCs. And that's why I wanted to present that as kind of a pre-assessment question, because I don't think that it's, it's uh, you know, super widely realized, especially among pharmacists, right? Of course, with these PVCs, we can have monomorphic and polymorphic. This starts getting into our monomorphic and polymorphic ventricular tachycardias. Sustained VTAC is defined as VTAC that's lasted for greater than 30 seconds or, or, or runs of VTAC that have lasted longer than 30 seconds, or of course, requiring direct current cardioversion. Lastly, he took, don't want to make this overcomplicated, but not all wide complex tachycardias. Wide complex tachycardias are a very academic way of talking about these. And we want to look at an EKG. So that's a wide complex tachycardia. That's the appropriate way to assess things because we can't say that it's a VTAC necessarily. We just look and say that's a wide complex and it's tachycardia. So of course, not all wide complex tachycardias are VTAC. 
And here's what, and, and here's a good example. Sometimes we have things called a bundle branch block. This is just an area of one of the bundle branches uh, in the heart, in the ventricle, that's blocked for whatever reason. Is a kind of an ischemic um, reason, or there's just that the nerve in there is is blocked for some reason or other. That causes it to be wide, right? Because we've kind of got that gap, and the electrical signal has to go around. The ventricle just contracts a little slower, and it's out of phase. Now we have AFib or, or SVT, right? And if you combine these two together, this is what we call SVT with aberrancy. It's just one, it's this word that we only use really for this. It's aberrant conduction, right? So that bundle branch is the aberrant conduction. And we throw on a supraventricular tachycardia on top of it. Guess what? Now we've got something that looks really close to VTAC. 80% are <clears throat> SVT with aberrancy, the very, small number of, of wide complex tachycardias or VTAC, but you have to always assume VTAC, right? You get in trouble if you assume SVT with aberrancy, even though it's, it's way less consequential. VTAC is consequential. So always assume VTAC if you, if you see a wide complex tachycardia. The person's stable, great. Then finally, of course, we've got monomorphic and polymorphic uh, ventricular tachycardia. Monomorphic is, is more associated with adult cardiovascular disease and those, those MIs that happen. Polymorphic is, you know, the best example of a polymorphic VTAC is torsades. Then we have all these other kind of forms and, and shapes and some, they do fall into monomorphic or polymorphic. Lots of different reasons. A lot of these fall into the, that sort of uh, pediatric category that I mentioned earlier. All right, so let's talk about ventricular tachycardia. Of course, it can be stable. It can be unstable. The, either one can, can, can be torsades, but unstable, definitely um, pulseless is unstable. And this is where we would immediately follow our ACS, ACLS algorithm and, and go down that algorithm of pulseless VTAC or VFIP. Characteristics of VTAC in general, it's faster. It's faster than AFib, right? So when you see that 180 to 280 to 300 maybe um, um, uh, beats per minute, then, then that might tip you off that this is a ventricular tachycardia. And of course, the stability, where we call patients stable or unstable, whether they're, they're, they're hemodynamically stable or unstable, depends on a lot of things like rate, age, ejection, fraction. Um, so, so hard to, 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 you know, hard to say whether somebody is going to be stable or unstable if you, they go into VTAC. We have to wait and see. But it's dependent on a lot of different things. All right, so Another pre-assessment, and then I'll tell you ahead of time, I might leave you hanging on this one, which is a true statement. I'm going to open the polls while, while everyone reads these. Um, amiodarone is FDA approved for rhythm control and AFib. Magnesium has been shown to terminate torsades. Or C, the best available evidence supports procainamide over amiodarone for stable monomorphic VTAC. So I see our, our numbers coming in. I'm going to give it about five to 10 more seconds. That 200 that have answered so far. I think I wrote another good question. This, this is great. It's, um, all right, I'm going to end the poll. I'm gonna share the results. Sort of equal across the board. We've got, we've got about an equal number, more or less. A lot of people wanna say uh, magnesium has been shown to terminate torsades. Uh, a lot of people wanna say the best available evidence supports procainamide. Um, I, des I uh, this, this, this question was intended to be tricky, but not, not to intentionally try to trick you. I'm going to clear this up in a few minutes here. Those people that, that, that hate not knowing the answer are, are just, I'm driving them crazy right now. All right. So unstable VTAC and VFib. What's the evidence behind these? We have to sort of talk about the, there, there's just not a lot of studies on in-hospital 
occurrences of this. So we sort of have to talk about this in the setting of out of hospital cardiac arrest. And we have to lump it in with VFib too. We've got a couple large out of hospital cardiac arrest trials. We have three, so three, maybe a few more landmark trials. So first was the arrest trial in 99. It was five, 504 patients. 74 of these were witnessed and we know witnessed is good. That's a good thing. It was amiodarone versus placebo. This was back in the 90s. We didn't really, we, we compared it to placebo. We didn't know if amiodarone was going to work. Well, amiodarone worked and it, and it, we started using amiodarone widely for this indication now. Now a word from our episode sponsor. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you're burnt out, need a change of pace, or looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be a solution for you. And if you consider locum tenens, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, Locum Story has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that you see locums trends for your specialty, compare different locum agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locum Story has the answers to basic questions like what is locum tenants to more complex questions about pay range, taxes, licensing, and many others. Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locum physicians who have firsthand locum experience. Locum Story is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums. 2010, um, there were a couple small, even smaller studies than this, but this was probably the biggest of its kind, talking about procainamide uh, and survival. Uh, I know it's for VFib, where you kind of lump it together, shockable rhythms with VTAC, um, but um, procainamide and amiodarone were equally ineffective, they say. You know, these are very small numbers, um, but but uh, it sort of highlights that uh, there's a lot of, uh, lot of confounders here. Uh, a lot of confounders in this study, um, and and but we we were learning. We we there were there was a time where procainamide was in uh, ACLS algorithm. It is no longer. Finally, is probably some of you, especially if you're into emergency medicine, are much more familiar with with the Alps Rock trial in 2016. This was the largest of its kind. Will probably stand as the largest for a while. There were there were over 4,000 patients um, randomized to either amiodarone or lidocaine or placebo. Um, there was no survival difference, you know, uh, neuro or neurological survival, uh, uh, neurologically uh, intact survival, which is good. We started looking at those as outcomes. Um, but lidocaine and amiodarone um, both uh, increased um, increased sort of uh, survival to hospital admission. Uh, lidocaine actually increased ROSC at ED arrival significantly over amiodarone. Um, and again, this highlights, I guess, real quick, the survival can be 75% if it's a witnessed uh, uh, event with a shockable rhythm. Um, and, and actually, Lido and amiodarone still benefited PEA in this population, too. We're not really sure why, um, but that's just more of a side note. Stepping away to un unstable VTAC. Of course, this is where we just like unstable VTAC. The patient's either not responding, their mental status is poor, or hemodynamically unstable, or, or you don't have a pulse. This is where we just follow our ACLS guideline. Not going to talk about a lot about the ACLS guideline today um, because um, it's a little bit beyond the scope. I wanted to get a little bit more on the weeds of, of VTAC uh, and, and stable VTAC, which is what we see a lot in the um, ED, uh, depending on where you, where you practice. But after three shocks, you either use amiodarone or lidocaine. And um, I always, I always kind of laugh at 
ACLS doesn't give a lot of direction on when to continue the infusion or not, whether to continue an infusion or not, uh, and what drugs to do that with. So we'll talk about a little bit about that at the end. I want to kind of talk about drugs for a few minutes. I want to, I want to try to simplify a list of, of antiarrhythmic drugs for you. First, remember that only our class one and our class three agents are true antiarrhythmics, right? Our, our class two and four on the Vaughn Williams classification are rate control agents. So we kind of throw those out. I like to, to, to cut our list of antiarrhythmics in half immediately by just talking about one and three. These are class one agents. We can kind of cross off disopyramide. It's a rare niche indication only for AFib, maybe in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, just not used a whole lot. Certainly not used for ventricular dysrhythmias. Quinidine's not available in, in most cases, and it's not used either. Propafenone and flecainide uh, both have black box warnings for structural heart disease. What does that mean? That's probably anything that we're going to be treating a patient with, with, with VTAC, as you know. They probably have something structurally or, or you know, ischemically, uh, ischemic issues with their heart. So those get crossed off and they're not, they, they failed big time in the nineties when we tried to study them for PVCs and, and, uh, and, and ventricular uh, dysrhythmias in the, in the CAST trial and a few other trials. Mixilatine is just a PO option of, of lidocaine. So we certainly don't use that for VTAC. It leaves two drugs out of our class one agents um, that we use for, for antidysrhythmias with ventricular uh, tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. Now we've got our class three agents, uh, Dornitarone, uh, sort of just not a not a commonly drug used anymore. It's PO anyway. Ibutilide in theory could be used. It just hasn't been studied uh, for very very much. There's a very there's one small study uh, for ibutilide in um in, in a ventricular dysrhythmia. Dofetilide is the PO version of ibutilide, so we certainly don't use that. Sotalol and Bertillium, I put dotted lines through here because actually ACLS 2020 suggests yeah you can use Sotalol, you can use Bertillium. But I'm trying to, I'm asking around, I know nobody knows how to get IV. Well, I think IV sotalol may be available, but nobody knows how to get Bertillium. There's like rumors um, uh, that, that it's available, but it was an old drug and, and people used to use it a lot in the 90s. Uh, um, and, and, but um, oddly enough, ACLS kind of recognized, yeah, you can use Bertillium, but it's not available and certainly not a lot of contemporary studies on it. So we're left with amiodarone. We're left with procainamide, lidocaine, and amiodarone. Again, for stable VTAC, you know, it, it's time sensitive. I'm, I know I'm kind of bouncing back to stable VTAC here. Um, but, you know, knowing that, that pad placement, blood pressure, 12 lead, you have a few minutes here, um, but time is of the essence. Um, and, and adenosine can be used for diagnosis. Um, uh, this is just from the ACLS 2020. Um, you know, adenosine, if it if it doesn't work, you know, if it works, then it might have been an AV nodal issue or a supraventricular tachycardia. You might have seen some change. But if absolutely nothing happens and you've kind of got a wide complex, uh, adenosine won't work. Also, adenosine is kind of a no-go for irregular or polymorphic wide complex tachycardias. Magnesium only showed to prevent and not terminate Torsades. We know we already get magnesium stuck in our head for torsades, and it is what you should be thinking about for torsades, but it's only been shown to prevent. So yeah, and so it's a little bit of semantics, I know, and I didn't mean that last question to be tricky, but I said magnesium's reliable treatment for torsades, but it's actually prevention. There's, there's several studies that have looked, and magnesium's never been shown to terminate torsades, but should we give it anyway? Probably. Now, for our entire body of evidence for stable monomorphic VTAC is on this slide right here. Um, 
So I'm going to walk you through these four trials real quick. I mean, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about them. I know we're getting a little close on time. I'm going to wrap up here in the next few minutes. So in 1996, there was, and I want you to focus on the sample size in these studies. Procainamide was shown to be superior to lidocaine for stable monomorphic VTAC. I mean, it really just, just hammered lidocaine, but only in 29 patients. Sotolol was shown to be superior to lidocaine in 94. These are, these are prospective randomized controlled trials again. Angeline, I don't know what Angeline is. We're not going to talk about Angeline. Was superior to lidocaine also. But whatever Angeline is, we should probably be using that over lidocaine for stable VTAC. So lidocaine's 0 for 3 at this point. And question whether Sotolol or Angeline are, are useful, have utility, but we certainly, they're certainly so, so non-mainstream that we're not going to entertain the idea of those. Finally, in 2017, Ortiz et al. came out with the procainamide um, trial or the um, uh, procainamide, uh, procameo trial, procainamide being superior to uh, amiodarone. Finally, there was one retrospective of, of trial in the mix with amiodarone being maybe equal to procainamide. So as you see, I highlighted in, in, in yellow here, Procameo is probably the best thing we have going right now in terms of evidence. The only randomized controlled trial with two sort of uh, um, drugs that we have uh, ready at the, at the ready and that aren't lidocaine. So we'll talk about this trial very briefly. We'll kind of end on this, but amiodarone was used at five mg per kg versus Procainamide, 10 mg per kg, both over 20 minutes. Now, they tried really, really hard to get this trial kind of to power and to get enough patients, but it took them six years with 26 centers just to get 74 patients. So they sort of said, you know, we're going to leave it here. We're, we're, we're all sort of ready to, ready to put, these, put this data together and, and get it out. So the major, their, their primary endpoint was major cardiac adverse events, and amiodarone did not fare very well to procainamide for the primary outcome. A different outcome was how effectively VT was terminated. And again, procainamide is the 67% down on the bottom, uh, and it beat, beat amiodarone um, as well. Adverse events, uh, amiodarone was responsible for the most adverse events, and most of these were hypotension. So a couple of things about the procameo trial. There were no mention of the actual doses or, or sort of like max doses, what people received. Everybody had uh, a sufficient ejection fraction. So we're not dealing with heart failure patients either. Are these doses practical and available? I, we, we question that. Also something to think about. We think about this with like AFib and using DIL versus metoprolol. I, I think like, well, what are we gonna, what's practical to send the patient home on? Is the patient at risk of, of, of having more VTAG VFib? Or are they going to the cath lab? Maybe it doesn't matter. But it's something to think about, right? Uh, uh, amiodarone is used first line uh, as outpatient medication for patients that have had large MIs and have heart failure um, that, that are, that are um, being treated for like the prevention of more ventricular dysrhythmias. And finally, you know, we have to, we have to kind of go to our guidelines here to balance out the Procameo trial and say that there is insufficient evidence to favor one agent over the other. Either amio, sodol, or procainamide are all acceptable for stable VTAC. Briefly, what do we do in heart failure patients? Well, in heart failure patients that have a, these patients, you know, they've had a huge MI, they're at risk of, of, of more ventricular dysrhythmia. So they have an ICD or an intracardiac defibrillator put into them. Then they get put on amiodarosotolol. Why? There was some, there was some important trials around 2015. Uh, the Vanish trial um, showed that ICD and ablation was better than drugs. Womp, womp, right? But we still put these patients on drugs because it helps them from being shocked all the time. 
Then when they're still shocked and they're on amyloid or sodalol, then we put them on. This is where, this is the niche for mixilatine. This is when we put patients on mixilatine. So what happens when this patient comes into the ED? And it happens every once in a while. This is where you might use olidocaine drip because you're simply using something a little, you're mixing up the class of drug a little bit more, but you could also use procainamide or, pro, or, or amiodarone too, okay? Dr. Lex, cardiologist, it's sort of a, of a toss up in this type of patient. What do we do with loading doses um, and, 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 and maintenances? Do we continue this? Um, I'll just kind of leave this. You can go back and look at this slide. It's a big question mark on, on, um, on what you should do if you start these patients on. Here, yep, here are the ranges of drugs. There's some evidence behind using these as infusions, but how long do you do them? Um, what's the evidence behind that length of duration? Um, and, and, and you know, what it becomes, it becomes very kind of niche, uh, customized cocktail by cardiology. So it, it gets complicated. And, and I don't know if there is an answer. I got some random fun facts. I don't know if we have, we have time for that. Somebody cut me off. If we don't have time to that, I'll go to our, I'll go to our final questions again. Um, and I've got like three minutes, I think, uh, of material left. I didn't talk about amiodarone's uh, polysorbate, kind of the formulation of amiodarone a whole lot. Chose to sort of, sort of um, not not talk about this a whole lot. Um, but it there's there's potential that the um, there's a ne ne nextrone product that's a pre a pre mixed formulation of amiodarone doesn't have this polysorbate. It's thought that the polysorbate may contribute to hypotension. Interestingly, that ALPS study that was big in 2016 used all this, all of this kind of novel cyclodextrin formulation. But of course, we don't have a comparator arm, so we don't really know. There's not a lot of comparative data on whether the formulation of amiodarone really makes a difference or not. So I think, uh, unfortunately, my belief is it's nested in, in, um, in, in, in opinions and, and beliefs and, and depending on what, what you read, um, but not sure how much it matters. Finally, amiodarone, this is sort of an, this was a wrong answer to one of those questions. Amiodarone's not a very effective rhythm control agent, both for AFib and VTAC. In fact, I put the FDA labeled indication, F, amiodarone's not even FDA labeled for AFib, right? But we use it so much. And then that's fine. It's more of an off-label sort of never got the indication, but we use it. There's lots of data support it. But it's always interesting what drugs are actually FDA labeled for. And in particular, the FDA labeling for amiodarone says, for patients who have not responded to an adequate dose of other antiarrhythmics. So it says use other antiarrhythmics before amiodarone, its own package insert. Finally, procainamide dosing is, is confusing. There's AFib protocols, there's FDA, what the FDA label says. I, I wouldn't get too hung up in it. Pick a dose, go with a procamio of 10 mg per kg. Uh, know that sort of there's a max of 17 mg per kg. Um, just kind of, you know, if, you're, if you want to be prepared to use procainamide, know the dosing, know the, know the studies, um, and, and, and sort of, uh, you know, know a couple of these things uh, specifically about procainamide dosing. Finally, interestingly, this is just a truly a fun fact, procainamide is actually hepa uh, hepatically metabolized into a sodium, uh, or sorry, into a potassium channel blocker, right? Sodium channel blocker, it's converted into NAPA, which is potassium channel. All right, finally, um, the answer to the first question I had, right, the ventricular tachycardia definition is three or more PVCs. Next, the answer to this question that I'd asked earlier, which is a true statement, uh, amiodarone is not FDA approved for AFib. Magnesium has been shown to prevent but not terminate torsades. So we're left with C, the best available evidence supports procainamide over amio. So VT is highly prognostic of acute MI. We may use, want to use amiodarone or lidocaine. They're both in the ACLS guidelines. Stable VTAC can be 
uh, uh, treated with either amio or procainamide. And, 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 and you may want to use the um, evidence from the procamio trial to support your uh, use of procainamide in this scenario. Um, but really still, you saw, the, you saw the numbers in all these trials, robust data is still lacking. Thank you.